0: Today's readings from Ephesians 2, chapters 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed your ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by the nature deserving of the wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages, he might show us incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us through christ jesus for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast for we are god's handiwork created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do this is the word of the lord
1: Thank you, Amy. Uh, Good morning. It is really good to be with you. My name is Gareth. I'm part of the clergy team. And before I speak, let me just pray for us. So, Lord God, as we gather in your name and as we gather around your word, by your Holy Spirit, would you open up our hearts to your word? And would you open up your word to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is this we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope i love these lines from the pastor and author tim keller's book the meaning of marriage and maybe you've heard this quote before it's one that's been used from the front a few times but i thought this was a good place to start for a couple of reasons number one because i think it's true it's punchy it's provocative and it's profoundly true and two because i think it offers us a pretty good summary of the substance of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, especially the first nine verses. And by extension, it's a pretty good summary of really what I want to share with you this morning. And I genuinely believe that if you and I this morning might grab hold of this gospel truth, it can transform our hearts and liberate us to live the life that God created and saved us to live. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd love to encourage you to have the passage open. And we're going to go through it together. And as we do, I want to suggest three ways in which this passage uh, and the gospel itself enables us and liberates us to live the life that God made and saved us to lead. First way this is expressed is that the gospel allows us to be honest with ourselves without losing heart. The gospel allows us to be honest with ourselves, brutally honest with ourselves, but without us having to lose heart. In verses 1 through 3, Paul kind of spells out in pretty stark terms sin and its consequences. What Paul is doing is he's, is he's not holding back in expressing the kind of dangerous spiritual state that the church in Ephesus was in, before they encountered Jesus. In verse 1, he says it like this. He goes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And these words, uh, sin and transgressions, that, uh, if, if you were to sort of directly uh, translate them from the original language, what you're left with is, is words which mean either to sort of miss the mark or uh, a word that means to kind of stray away from the path that God has set us on. So in sort of straightforward terms, sin means to kind of miss the mark and to transgress or to trespass means to kind of stray from the path that God has created for us. But what becomes clear, and if you look with me at verses 2 and 3, what you'll notice is that there are actually a number of factors, a number of influences, which are kind of cause us to find ourselves missing the mark and straying away from God's path for us. There's kind of what you might call cultural or social factors that seem to be pushing and pulling us. The Ephesians, we're told, were formerly dead in their sins and transgressions in which they used to live when they followed the ways of this world. So what Paul is sort of saying is it's like the world itself seems to be pushing us in the direction of walking away from his path. And it seems to me what's going on here is not simply that Paul is saying, in the world you will find people that will pressure you to do things you don't want to do, although I think that's part of it. But I think there's something more profound at play. It's almost like Paul is saying, the world is set up in such a way that it can be really hard to follow Jesus. And even if you're not a Christian yet, you might have experienced a sense of feeling like there's something about the way that the world is set up, the way that our economy is set up, the way that culture wants to push us. that means that it's really hard to actually make the kind of ethical choices we want to make day to day. It's really hard to actually follow our own conscience. And so we find ourselves falling short of our own glory, let alone that of God's. But as well as the world, Paul then goes on to say that this is also influenced by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So as well as kind of cultural and social factors, there are spiritual factors. Now, I'm very nervous this morning about opening up a massive can of worms that I can't do justice to, but I do simply want to say this, and I think Paul is pretty clear about this, is that there are spiritual forces at work in the world cause the world to be the way it is, and also make it hard for us to follow Jesus. And this is a truth. But, but, lest you find yourself reading this and going, gosh, well, I don't have any personal culpability for any of my own brokenness or bad decisions, Paul then lays out the personal factor in verse 3 when he says... All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh or our sinful nature, following its design and thoughts. And at this point, Paul is speaking to a kind of primarily Gentile context, but he's saying that even as someone who had been a Jew, who had been part of God's covenant people, and to some degree shielded, from some of those other influences. Actually, such is human nature that we ourselves are perfectly capable of messing up and missing the mark, even without these other factors. But the reason I lay all of this out for you in these verses is I think what Paul is saying, and I think this is true and I think this is helpful, is that sin is both something that has external and internal dimensions. Sin is both something that we kind of get caught up in, it's something that we find ourselves dragged into, but it's also something that we ourselves internally are capable of making happen. And actually, these two things interact with each other. One of the things I was reflecting on as I was reading this and preparing this is actually then when I make my own bad, broken decisions, oftentimes I then contribute to the world being the kind of place that it is that makes it harder for other people to find and follow Jesus in. So it's like we have these multidimensional nature of sin, and I've just started reading a book uh, that you may want to read. It's by John Mark Comer. I do read other authors, but it is a good book, and it's all about how the church in its earliest days named three enemies of the soul: sin, the flesh, and the devil. And all of them are found as what is being named by Paul in this passage. Now, I realize that a lot of this language may seem pretty strange to our 21st-century ears, even to those of us who are in the church and have been following Jesus for a while, right? Some of this language may seem pretty strange. But I would also suggest to you that actually it names, and here really Paul manages to kind of make sense of something that I think that deep down we all know or at least feel. Actually, I think if you ask people, including a lot of people outside of the church, I think they would tell you that there is a sense sometimes in which the world in which we live in is overwhelming and it sometimes feels as if there are forces conspiring against us making it hard for us to be the people that we want to be and true too for christians it can feel like it's really hard to be the people that god created us to be and to follow jesus as one yet at the very same time if we're honest with ourselves truly honest with ourselves we know that we too Don't do the things we want to do. Paul himself uses the language in Romans of, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. And in turn, we then contribute to this kind of confusing, messed up and flawed world. Paul is pretty honest here in saying, you are more flawed than you ever dared believe. But I think a lot of us kind of know this deep down. This actually rings true to us quite instinctively, even if we wouldn't be familiar with this kind of language. And it seems to me that, When we are, and this is a when, not if, confronted with our own flaws and with the flaws of the world, then actually our surrounding culture offers us a couple of ways to try and get out of this situation, a couple of coping strategies for our own brokenness. Crudely, I want to say that one of them is the kind of alternative gospels, if you will, and one of them I'm going to call the gospel of self-improvement. This is that if you just work hard enough or smart enough, then you can rescue yourself from your own broken situation, what you've done or what others might have done to you, and you can achieve your way out of frailty towards, towards a sense of fulfillment. I think that's, that's, that's one kind of story that we get told. And actually, I think there's some, something good about this because it says that we don't have to be sort of defined or defeated by our faults. So I'd want to affirm that. But here, I think, is the problem with the gospel of self-improvement there's two things that can go wrong if you go down this path. Number one, you struggle to achieve the things you set out to do, and therefore you find yourself feeling defeated. Number two, you do achieve all the things you set out to do, and then you don't actually find it fulfills or satisfies you in the ways that you had hoped. The other week I was listening to a podcast which is straight out of the gospel of uh, self-improvement camp, Uh, called The Diary of a CEO, and it was a conversation between uh, Stephen Bartlett, who I think is going to be the next dragon on Dragon's Den, and uh, Nick Jenkins, who used to be on Dragon's Den, and he's the guy behind Moonpig. And it's really interesting, because these two guys, who had, in economic terms, achieved so much, were having this really honest conversation about the fact that so many entrepreneurs and successful people they know live their life are striving and striving and striving, and then they get to a point where they've achieved all the things they set out to do, and yet they find themselves feeling strangely empty. What was interesting was Nick Jenkins, and I found it fascinating that he used this language, said this was a particular danger for people that were driven by their demons. His language. He said often people driven by their demons by having been told that they wouldn't amount to anything, find themselves working and working, striving and striving, just to prove somebody else wrong. But then, when it comes to it, they find themselves no no more healed or fulfilled than they were before. Yesterday, I had uh, the pleasure of about a year and a half after we'd originally had to do this, going with Laura to see Hamilton at the West End yesterday. Um, Some fans in the room. And Hamilton, if you don't know it, is the story of one of the founding fathers of the U.S. He is this person who is both broken yet brilliant. He grows up in incredibly difficult circumstances, and yet somehow, through sheer determination, finds himself one of the most influential people at the start of the U.S. And he achieves and accomplishes so much, but in the words of his own wife, doesn't matter what he gets done, he's never satisfied. She keeps telling him, you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. And actually, this lack of satisfaction, despite anything and everything that he does, is actually the thing that ruins his family life. It ruins his marriage. And actually, it even ruins his own career and legacy, in a way. And so, Faced with our own brokenness, we might go down this path of self-improvement, but the danger is is that we find ourselves even more frustrated that our faults and our frailties are still there. More quickly, the second alternative is what you might call the gospel of self-acceptance, which is to simply say, well, I'm just going to own and embrace my faults and maybe post about it and overshare on social media as I do it. Now, on one level, I think there is, again, something good and healthy about being able to be honest with ourselves about our own situation. I think that's good. But actually, when we, when we embrace our brokenness in this kind of way, we actually deny ourselves the possibility of being transformed. Here's where the gospel comes in and is a game changer. The gospel means that you are flawed yet loved, that you are broken yet you find acceptance in Jesus. And this means that on the one hand, you don't have to deny your sinfulness, your brokenness, or that that's a problem. But at the very same time, because of the love and grace of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be defined or defeated by those flaws either. You don't have to deny your flaws of fragility. But because of Jesus' love, you don't have to... You don't have to you don't have to be defined or defeated by them either. Because listen to verses 4 and 5. Built because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. God, because of his love for us in Jesus, has made us alive. And so you can be honest with yourself without losing heart, without losing hope. You can own your brokenness, but be transformed by the love and the acceptance of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel allows us to be honest with ourselves, but without losing heart. Because there is hope, it just doesn't come from ourselves. Number two, according to the gospel, number two, the gospel enables us to count our blessings without being boastful. Number two, the gospel enables us to count our blessings without being boastful. Now, just as Paul didn't hold back when describing. the the dangerous spiritual state that the Ephesians were in before they encountered Jesus, he doesn't in any way hold back when he talks about the riches of the blessings that have been poured out when they did encounter Jesus. Listen to verse 6. And bear in mind, uh, Paul has already said that God made us alive in Jesus. And in verse 6 he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in christ jesus he raised us up seated us in the heavenly realms and if you look back at last week's passage in chapter 1 verse 20 this is the same language that paul uses to describe what god the father has done to jesus himself jesus died and then was raised up and then seated at the heavenly realms at the right side of his father And Paul uses the same language. He says that when we are in Jesus, we're made alive, we're raised up, and we're seated in the heavenly realms. The gospel and being saved by Jesus Christ is not simply a get-out-of-jail-free card or a not-guilty verdict. Actually, it is the utter transformation of our status so that what can be said about Jesus, by extension, as crazy as this sounds, be said about you and I. We become co-heirs with Christ. We are risen up and seated in the heavenly realms. And I really want to encourage you this morning to actively and consciously count this blessing in your life. And I think we really need to do this for two reasons. Number one, I think that when we really grab a hold of this truth, it means that we can appreciate our status in a way that transcends our circumstances. Now, I don't want to deny in a glib way the genuine difficulties that we face, even or sometimes especially as followers of Jesus. But if we actually believe this truth, it means that even when we are going through the valley of the shadow of death, even when that's our subjective experience, the objective reality that defines who we are is that we are seated in the heavenly realms. So when you go into your workplace tomorrow, when you go onto campus tomorrow, when you engage with your family tomorrow, you do so seated in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. And secondly, it actually gives us a transformed life to live up to. Even though we're still broken, actually, let's live our lives through the lens of those who've been seated in the heavenly realms. So when you find yourself faced with temptation, where it's really easy, to act as if you're still dead in your sins and transgressions, actually hear this truth spoken over you. No, you are seated in the heavenly realms. You are seated in the heavenly realms. And so live your life knowing that that is true. Now, of course, I think the reason why we're maybe slightly shy about counting or embracing this blessing, especially if we're British, is that it seems a little bit kind of awkward. It seems a little bit almost immodest to be able to lay claim to this truth that Paul is laying out here. And I, and I get that. And equally, we, given the massive contrast between what Paul is laying out in verses one to three and what he's laying out in these verses, we don't want to give the impression of saying, oh, well as Christians, we're so much better than other people. But what Paul gives us in this passage. What the gospel does is it enables us to count these blessings without boasting. Why? Because your status has got nothing to do with you anyway. Verse five, you've been saved by grace. Verse seven, this has happened to you in order that Jesus or the Lord might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, you've been saved by grace. Verse 9, this is not by works so that no one can boast. And so what Paul is saying here is summed up pretty nicely by uh, Lynn Coick in her commentary on Ephesians, where she says, Paul's overarching message is that salvation is God's doing in Christ without human engineering. Right? And just as we're unable to escape our flaws, through human engineering, when we actually are able to lay, home, lay claim to these blessings available in Christ, but do so knowing that it is without any human engineering on our part, then that actually frees us up to count our blessings, to be and live out who we were created to be, but we get to do so without boasting, because it was never about us anyway. And thirdly and finally, and we land here, that the gospel then in turn frees us to fulfill our potential without becoming proud or preoccupied with ourselves. The gospel frees us to fulfill our potential without becoming proud or preoccupied with ourselves. The passage ends, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What Paul is saying here is that despite our flaws and fragility, You were made for more. You were originally designed to do God's work. You were created to play your part in God's plan to rescue the world. You were created to do the good works that he has set before you. You are created with potential to be part of God's plan. This is who you were made to be. This is who you're saved to be. And I love this, and this is probably the most sort of Instagrammable verse in this passage, right? And I think naturally, this is the kind of verse that maybe as a preacher, you want to gravitate to immediately in a passage like this, right? Because it's very empowering. But one of the things I found really striking as I was preparing for today is that before we get to the good works we were prepared to do, we get nine verses of what God has done for us first. Before we get to the bit about what we get to do, actually, there are nine verses. There's a 90-10 split in terms of how Paul lays this out. And I find this striking because I suspect that as a preacher, my tendency when trying to kind of teach is to flip this round, right? Start with a one verse, 10% caveat about how, well, actually, it's Jesus who saves us anyway, and then get to doing the other 90% about the good works I want to encourage you all to do, right? I think that's the temptation. And don't get me wrong, Paul spends most of chapters 4 through 6 looking at how this plays out on the ground, right? But I sometimes wonder that in our desire to get to relevance and application, we actually miss out that actually grace is a prerequisite for the relevance, and application. Because I think, again, there are a couple of things that stop us from actually living out our God-given potential. Two things that get in the way. One is we actively try to do it, but we do, but, but actually our calling and our sense of purpose gets wrapped up in pride with a kind of self-preoccupation. We, we're kind of doing God's work, but actually we're really doing our work right? That's, that's one danger. The other danger is that we see people doing that and think, I don't want to be that person. And so our solution to that is to just hold back and not in any way seek to live out our God-given potential and the thing that God has called us to be. But in a weird kind of way, that's just a different kind of pride, right? Because if, and you may have heard this, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. There may be pride is not thinking too much of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves too much. And actually, that then infects and it ruins our attempts to fulfill our potential, either by meaning that we do so in a really broken way, or we just hold back. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There are nine verses about how this is about God's grace. And so here's what I think we're called to do if we follow not just the substance but also the way this passage plays out is that we constantly remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us we constantly are reminded that it isn't about us but what God has done in Jesus we're constantly reminded that despite our flaws we are saved because God loves us and has rescued us in Jesus Christ we become grace obsessives we become grace obsessives and as we become more and more obsessed with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us then then we can not only be honest with ourselves without losing heart we can not only actually claim our identity without becoming boastful but we can actually begin to live out our God-given potential, to do the works that he's called us to do, to make disciples, to heal the city, to be part of his transformation project, but in a way that doesn't make us proud or preoccupied about ourselves. Because it's not about us. It never was. But God, by his grace, still wants to use us anyway to be his people. Because you are, and I am, more flawed and sinful than I ever imagined. But at the very same time, at the very same time, you and I are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hoped. And nothing, nothing could be more liberating than knowing that.